0: Tonight we're in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, we are going to begin a series in a couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Nathan will be preaching next week. Uh, but then the week after we're going to start a series through the, uh, the prophetic book of Malachi. Uh, the very last book in your Old Testament. So I think it'll be a, it'll be a fun study to walk through, that, walk through that book for a couple of weeks. But in the meantime we're going to study a little bit here at the end of chapter 12 of the book of Romans. And what I'm going to do uh, tonight, just to give you some bearings of where we're going to go, uh, we're going to stay in this chapter, but really we're going to talk about um, mostly of what Paul does through Romans and then how it kind of culminates here with this particular chapter. Romans 12 is, uh, of course, as you might know, one of the very most important chapters in this book as it follows several other really important chapters. But uh, the book of Romans, uh, just in general, is a massive accomplishment not just on a spiritual level but precisely in, uh, uh, on some other levels too from just an academic perspective the book of romans has been regarded and hailed as one of the most uh, one of the greatest feats of literature that has ever been written Um, even uh, others who are perhaps not uh, Christian per se or not religious or not part of the faith have even recognized that Paul's logic and assertions is almost unrivaled by others who have tried similar sorts of disputations and in fact one English theologian uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge he writes that the book of Romans is the most profound work in existence including all of the other realms of literature that's his estimation of this book, from perhaps a literary perspective, and that he also assumes is not just among the letters of Paul, but all of the all writings in general. He considers it the most profound in existence, and I would have to agree. It's this book that is often one that preachers are—they don't dive into lightly. It's one they take seriously. And I think that's because uh, mostly the book of Romans is the fullest, we could say, uh, explanation of what the gospel is from beginning to end. What, the Paul, what Paul does is give us a full view of what we would call the Christian gospel. Here's what we believe. Here's what we affirm from beginning to end. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why the book of Romans Served, as you as you might know, as the spark that sort of lit the flames of the Protestant Reformation. Luther did, rediscovering, we might say, the true message of the gospel through the book of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. That those who are just live by faith. Leading Luther to write this about this book itself. He says, quote, The epistle to the Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. (laughs) I like that. He considered this book of such great value, of such great worth. He commends it to us every day, which is just to say, the book of Romans is, like the rest of Scripture, a well that has no bottom. A well that is bottomless, that you cannot ever plumb the depths of. It is a book of significance and resonance that we will never, ever run dry. And that's why it's so commended and so regarded by the church Generally speaking, Romans, much like uh, some of Paul's other letters, follows a pretty predictable, we might say, pattern. Just in the sense that most of what Paul does in the beginning is explain a lot of doctrine, explain a lot of what we would call the doctrines of the church, salvation, justification, etc., etc., All of that is expended uh, in the the beginning chapters. With the later chapters sort of explaining the sort of so what. The now what that comes after this this full-fledged gospel presentation. He almost answers that now what in every single letter. You can see this with Ephesians. That sort of turn that happens in Ephesians chapter 4. Colossians, etc. And here, it happens right here in chapter 12. This gospel Proclamation we could say happens from chapters one through eleven that full, very robust, very rich presentation of the gospel where he where he talks about who Christ is and why we are saved by faith alone that's purely and clearly demonstrated throughout those chapters with here beginning in chapter twelve through the rest of the book the sort of he, he takes his time sort of sorting out all of the ramifications here's Here's the consequences. Here's, we could say, the fallout. Here's what that gospel does, and not just the life of the church, but the life of you and I. The life of individuals who come to believe this good news. All of those assertions make up this later half. But I would also say that all these assertions that come here from chapter 12 to the end would be really ineffectual. They wouldn't be of much worth if the other foundation wasn't laid. That's why it's very important to notice the pattern. Paul never just comes out and gives us injunctions, gives us commands without telling us where these commands come from. They come from a clear understanding, clear demonstration of the gospel. The The commands that he gives spring out of, yes, we could say the love of Christ given to us. It's the fruit of the spirit that he goes on and talks about in Galatians chapter 5. That foundation of the gospel of grace clearly laid then brings Paul to the point where he can say, and here's what we build on top of that foundation, so to speak. And I think that's why he spends so much time Especially in Romans. Laying that foundation. Making sure all the finer points of the gospel are clear. Christ is the second Adam chapter 5. We are saved by grace through faith. No righteousness of our own counts. Romans chapter uh, 4. 3 and 4. He goes through all of those very clear measures. To make sure that now that we have that understanding. Here's what the church looks like. Here's what believers look like. And then when he makes this turn. We could say the turn. The turn from talking about doctrine to talking about what it looks like in in real life happens. There's a clear sort of foundation that is laid as he turns to this sort of practical outworking of that gospel. That's what we're getting at when we come to Romans chapter 12 verse 1. That very famous verse that you might know. Perhaps you've memorized at one point in your life. (laughs) Where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That, of course, you know, as preachers like to say that cliche, if there's a therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. and It's funny and preachers like to do that, but it's true. You have to know what it's there for. He's not just saying it willy-nilly. He's clearly saying that everything that has come before now leads me to make this point. Which is why we can't just isolate something out of context. We can't just say that this is what matters all the time. Keep what Paul is saying in context. That's really important. In every piece of letter, in every piece of scriptural writing, uh, the context proves king and proves very important. Because he says, by all of what we've just talked about, think about what he talks about in Romans chapter 8. The inseparable love of God that will not let you go no matter what, principalities or powers or life or death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. What's an incredible foundation then for, perhaps we could call it, doing the work of God that he calls us to in chapter 12? (laughs) Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even when you fail in the work that God has called you to. It's a very important foundation to have in our minds. To have at the root of all that we do for the Lord Jesus. This foundation of the gospel that is proclaimed. And that's what he's calling us to. Calling these readers in Romans. Calling us now here as we're we're reading it. To keep all of that in mind. Everything that I've just said. Keep it. In your mind, because that's what's going to lead you to, as he says here, this surrender that you are called to in verses one and two through this transforming work of God's Spirit. Notice again, verse one of chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove that prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This, as I said previously, this is Paul's turn. The turn from talking about the doctrines of grace to now talking about what those doctrines do in our personal lives as believers, in our corporate lives as the church, in our social lives as we the church go out and witness to the world. This is, we could say, these two verses especially, this talking about uh, presenting our bodies, surrendering to this transforming work of God's spirit is the premise that he's going to really explain really expound upon for the rest of the book of Romans it's just an articulation of what it means in chapters 13 14 15 16 to see what it means to have our minds renewed have our lives transformed And I think the key as I was studying this past week is recognizing who is engineering this transformation who's looking at these verses who's We can say who's the transformer? Who's the renovator? Is it is it you? Is it is it me? Is it pastors? Am I, am I the change agent of people in their lives? Is it the church? Is it this institution that we call the church? No, actually it's none of those things. The only transformation and renewal that happens, happens as we are in communion with the Spirit. As he says there, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable, unto whom? To God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's the transformer. He's the renovator. That's what that word renew means. It means renovate. I get this image in my head of like Chip and Joanna Gaines on Fixer Upper going into an old dilapidated house. And doing the work of renovation. <laughs> and that's what the spirit of God is doing to you and me. He's the one that's coming in and tearing down all those old walls. Have you ever watched that show? And she always wants to tear down every wall. Whenever there's a wall she wants to tear it down and make it an open floor plan. That's what she likes to do. And put shiplap on all the walls. <laughs> that's her stick, I guess. <laughs> but that, that's essentially we can say There's a silly illustration. But that's what God's spirit is doing in us. Coming in, tearing down walls, tearing up floors, making everything new, renewing our minds, renovating our hearts and souls. That's what he does. He's the renovator, the transformer. That's what he does. He he does this overhauling work in us. And all that's required of us is what? Present our bodies to him. Present our lives to him. Offer ourselves to this one who does the work of transformation That's what he does He indwells messy souls Sinful souls And does this overhauling work And he makes dead we could, As we know from Colossians and other passages Ephesians chapter 2 He takes those who are dead in sins it says Dead in sins and he raises them up to new life again That's the work of renovation. That's the work of transformation. And that's who this God is. The old preacher from uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, D.G. Barnhouse. He says, God is the great transformer of lives. He turns slaves into kings. And I would even add to that quote, he turns sinners into saints. (laughs) I love the fact that in almost all of Paul's letters... You know, especially ones the, the one that sticks out into my mind is 1 Corinthians. And, and you know, if you've studied that book, there's a lot of problems going on in that church. <laughs> there's a lot of issues he's dealing with. They don't act like saints. And yet, what does Paul call them over and over again? Saints. <laughs> he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's reminding them of who they are by faith. God is transforming your life, and you're and they're trying to do the work yourself. <laughs> Have you ever seen one of the homeowners? I'm going to try not to keep beating this illustration to the ground because it'll probably ruin it. But have you ever seen a homeowner in, in that show Fixer Upper try and take the hammer in their own hands away from Chip and Joanna Gaines? Probably wouldn't end that well because they are the ones who are supposed to be doing the work. And then when the owners come in, they, they have their own, they, they would ruin it, they would mess it up. In a similar way, I think sometimes we like to take the hammer out of God's hands. We like to take the chisel out of the Spirit's hands. I can do the work better. I can do the transformation work better than the Spirit can. And that's usually often when we fail. That's usually when we mess things up. Because God is in the business of transforming lives. That's his ministry. Through yes through the church. Through our lives in the communion with each other. That's his business as the Holy Spirit. As he indwells us by faith. And it isn't isn't a marvel that God has chosen to use messed up people to be transformed. To then go back out into the world. To transform the world. By speaking and ministering to other messed up people. (laughs) That's really what he does. He takes people, transforms them, and shows the world what he can do through transformed souls. That's what he's done throughout the beginning of the church. And all we're called to do is live in communion. Live by faith in communion with this Spirit of God. Who, by the Word of God and along with the people of God, transforms souls. That's his method. How do we commune with the spirit of God? By engaging with the word of God. With other people of God. And transformation happens. And I think that's the point. I think one of the great points that Paul makes here. As he's making this turn. Into talking about the practical effects of the gospel. Is he, he's making this very clear point. About what the Christian life is all about. And specifically it's not about Performance. You know what he says? And be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may perform what is good and acceptable and per- no that ye may prove that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not a performing life that you and I are called to. It's a proving life. It means verse number 2 it means to test Or to examine and it's very suggestive of this very particular image of a blacksmith sort of proving the quality of the metal that he's working with by putting it sometimes repeatedly into the furnace. Perhaps you might think of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 where he makes that same point that our sufferings are the crucible by which God is testing our faith. He makes that point there, Peter does. And Paul is making the same point. That, yes, we as the church, our life is not performing to get, it's proving because we've been given. It's a different formula. It's a different formula than performing and trying to win something. We have been given something and we're proving what we've been given. We've been given the Spirit who's doing this transformation, and all that we're called to do is live in communion with the Spirit and evidence that transformation before others. What a great and precious and remarkable calling. Amazing work that he gives us. And that's the life of the redeemed. The life of the church. The great orator H.A. Ironside, he says this. It is not in order that we may be the children of our Father in heaven. It is the manifestation of the Spirit's work and those who belong to the new creation. <laughs> this proving work. It's not in order to be children. We are children. Now we're called to live like Children. You see how it changes the way. It, there's there's no pressure in order to get. We are already in. Now we are called to live according as if we are in. And we're in by the spirit. And we stay in by the spirit. All of it happens because the spirit of God is in us. And indwelling in us. and And leading us along. I think that's the great freeing thought for me. And hopefully for you too. That. This life that we are called to as the church, it's not one of performing, but it's one of proving. And we live and walk by faith to prove, yes, to evidence. Yes, to yes, make, uh, make it very well known to those who are around us exactly how true and good and genuine that work of renovation that is already taking place. That's what we're called to. Prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God that's your calling that's our quote reasonable service it's not one that we live in order to attain acceptance and win it as if it's a reward we've been accepted so now live accordingly (laughs) that's the summary of what Paul says in almost every letter (laughs) you are you've been made light so walk as children of light he says in Ephesians (laughs) This is your new identity. This is your new calling. This is your new life. And I think that's the remarkable message of grace. That it gives us this calling and this identity before we can actually do it. And I think that's, that's what Paul is here summarizing. That this Christian life, this life of the church as he is writing to this church in Rome... All it is it's wrapped up in proving God's love, declaring it, demonstrating it, and discipling others in it. We are reflectors reflectors of the light of God, the light of the world. We live and walk as mirrors. That's our calling as the church. We're reflecting the great light of the world as we walk in this age of darkness. Paul makes that point very pointedly clear in the Ephesians chapter five, I might recall your minds. There's a great passage. This writer is making the same point. I, I like what he says. Listen to what he says, quote, "Too often, instead of acting like mirrors, pointing back to Jesus, we try to act like billboards, advertising ourselves." But outside of Jesus, we have no ability to create. In the same way, the moon can't light up without the sun because all it is doing is reflecting the sunlight. We can't create or bear God's image on our own. Trying to get glory for things we have done is like the moon shouting, look how awesome I am. And the only reason the moon is shining in the first place is because of the sun. The brightness of the moon is borrowed brightness. And I think there's a similar way we can say that that's us too. We, we are like this moon. We reflect the image of the sun, S-O-N. And yes, we calling out ourselves for, look at how good I am, look at how awesome I am, look at how holy I am. is just the moon trying to act like it's awesome when all it is is reflecting, reflecting the light of the sun. You see how silly that is? And I think Paul is making the same point here. You are dead. Jesus has raised you, and your whole life remains in reminding yourself, preaching to yourself, yes, through the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that you are nothing but dead bones except for the spirit of life, the breath of life that fills you. That's what I think Paul is after. I think that's what he's after in every life of the church, in every sermon that he gives. It's it's all of grace, and this grace leads to a mighty moving of God's people. Because gracious people, yes, if they remember how free that grace was, live accordingly. (laughs) They live this upside-down life. Because then notice verse number nine, in back in Romans chapter twelve, because it brings me to this text at last, finally. Because he answers almost, what does this renovation look like? He talks, be ye transformed by the renewing, by the renovation of your minds. Improving what that work looks like. So, what does that work look like? What, is it, what does it look like to live a life that is, that is good and acceptable and, and perfect in the eyes of God? Well, that's what he describes here. In verses 9 down through verse 21, this Loving and kindly affectioned, all these, all these different, we could call them bullet points of what he calls uh, this renovation work, this transformation work, and what it actually looks like on the ground. And, you know, I was thinking about these verses, verses nine through twenty-one here at the end of chapters twelve. At the end of chapter twelve, well, let me just read them so you get them in context. Notice what he says. Let love. So he keep in your mind. He's almost answering that question. What does the renovation of the spirit look like in the life of the church? He says, Let love be without dissimulation. Let it be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil, for evil provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Great passage that clearly describes what we could call are the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, when I was approaching how to perhaps explain what Paul is doing here, you very well could just lay the grid of the fruits of the Spirit over these verses and explain them that way. Do you remember what the fruits of the Spirit are? I won't test you. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. He walks through all of those in all of these 12 verses. Essentially, you could organize all of these verses into those categories and explain them that way. He's expanding on the fruits of the Spirit in a way. Making it very clear that this is the work of the Spirit that he does through his people. The the seed of the gospel of grace bears fruit, and that fruit looks like loving your neighbor without uh, dissimulation, as it says in the King James, without hypocrisy. Genuine love, and how do you know it's genuine love? Because you're given, as he says in verse 13, to hospitality. (laughs) How do you know it's genuine love? Because you're going out of your way, in verse 20, to give food and drink to those you would rather probably punch in the face. (laughs) It's the fruit of the spirit being born in your life. But I think you could do it that way. I think it's a very good study. Uh, but I was thinking perhaps even the simpler than all of that. Would be just to consider these verses as a longer version of Jesus' own summation of the law. I'm going to read it. You don't have to go there uh, unless you want to. But in Matthew 22 that's exactly what Jesus does. He summarizes the law. He's a, he, Jesus is approached by this lawyer. Matthew 22 verse 37 or verse 36. The, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they've come together and they're, they're asking Jesus his question. Then one of them, it says, Matthew twenty two thirty five. 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God? With all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's Jesus' summation of what it looks like to live. We could say live the Christian life. What it looks like to live according to God's law. What it looks like to have, yes, God's spirit Bear his fruit in our lives. It looks like loving God and loving your neighbor above all else. And essentially that's what Paul is doing here. You could divide these 12 verses roughly. You could put them in those categories. What it looks like to love God. What it looks like to love your neighbor. That's what it means to belong to Christ's body. What it means to be the church. Loving God above all things and loving your neighbor as yourself. Period. (laughs) You know, sometimes, I'll say this for myself. We sometimes like to make a Christian life a lot more complicated than it needs to be. We like to make it really difficult to be a Christian, really difficult on ourselves to live the Christian life. You know, (laughs) have you ever heard of Sunday School Answers? Every answer is Jesus. Every answer is Bible. Every answer is prayer. And you know it's kind of funny. But it's actually kind of true too. The way you live the Christian life. Is by reading your Bible and praying. And Jesus' spirit informs you. Transforms you. Renews your mind through those very simple means. It's not about Hail Marys. It's not about all kinds of rituals and rites. And all those sorts of things. It's reading your Bible and praying and communing with other Christians who are reading their Bible and praying isn't that the joy of the church that we are all the saints who are in communion with the same spirit reading the same words being transformed by the renewing of our minds because we are being indwelt by the same spirit of God what a joy that's the joy of the church yeah we're being transformed in different ways and that's the joy of the church (laughs) I think it's a joy to know that this is the work of God that he's doing all throughout the ages. And I think that this is what we could call Paul's treatment of the summation of the law. Love your neighbor, love, love for God and love for neighbor above all things. So he calls the church in verses 9 and 10. What is the church known by? It's known by genuine self-sacrificial love. That love there in verse 9, it's agape. Agape love. Love that is willing to lay itself down for the good of another. And the church, verse number 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Philadelphia. (laughs) It's love that sort of leads us to imagine that we are family. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not a light thing when we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it is true, we are covered and brought into the same family of God. By our, yes, our greater elder brother Christ. <laughs> he brings us into God's family. And now we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of God. Who can live as kindly affectioned one to another. We belong to one another. And we evidence this renovating work. When we willingly join our brothers and sisters. In their moments of trial. Those verses. Verse 12 and verse 15. Are some of the sweetest verses. That Paul writes here. As he says. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer. Verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And weep with them that do weep. As a family. When our family rejoices, we rejoice with them. And then, yes, as our family hurts, we hurt. Perhaps we've felt that more true recently than other times. But this is what it means and what I would say what it looks like to be the church. To have our hearts transformed. That we are willingly entering into the hurt of others and weeping with them, consoling them rejoicing with them in hope but yes consoling them with the same hope and that's what we can say is the trademark of the church it's this this love that we are to display above all things we don't need to take matters into our own hands as he says in verse 14 bless them which persecute you bless and curse not and as he expands on that in verse 17 through the end about not taking vengeance into our own grip but leaving it unto God. You know that's what he means there in verse 19. Avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath which literally just means rather give place unto divine wrath. Give it, give it to the one who truly has the authority and the sway to mete out divine vengeance. Don't take it into your own hands. These are the traits of the church of God. As the gospel is implanted in the people of God. The fruits of the spirits are blooming and looking like this. Looking like love and joy and peace and patience. And kindness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. That's what the church looks like in full bloom. (laughs) And I think the. The most important thing is to hearken back again to the idea that God's spirit, Christ's spirit is the renovator. is just to to remind ourselves these traits are not native to us. I don't know about you, but I am not one who is quick to be patient. I'm not one who is quick to let someone else continue to get the way. Be meek, be self-controlled when I feel like I'm being wronged. And yet, what does God call us to? He calls us to this, yes, we could call it upside-down life. It's the life of the Spirit working in us. And as He works in us and works on us, these are the things that come out of us. That's what happens in the life of the church as our minds are transformed, as our hearts are renewed and renovated by this transforming grace of God. And that's the freeing thing. It's this grace that gives and gives and transforms and gives and transforms. And the spirit is doing all of this in our hearts and minds and souls. Renovating, cleaning up, making us new. And yes... He's making us new so much so that when we get to glory, we will live in glorified bodies. No longer needing this renovating work, but standing unashamed in the presence of God. I'm so thankful that this Spirit doesn't give up on us when we fail in these things. When perhaps sometimes we are a little bit disingenuous with our love. When... We aren't as kind to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we ought to be. When we don't function like a family of God as we ought to. You know who reminds us that we are still in Christ and that we are still of the same blood? It's the spirit of God. Who doesn't give up on his own. He never gives up on those whom he has redeemed and called his sons and daughters, his brothers and sisters. The life of the church is a life of surrender to the great transformer of lives the one who takes sinners and makes them into saints let us pray